All right, everyone. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. This is Talk Radio to Thrive By. You know what? This is our Street Smart Spirituality Hour, Health and Wellness. We're going to talk about it today. You know, what do you say to someone that has sold 2.5 million copies of their book? I mean, how do you start an interview like this? I mean, where should you start? Well, let me just say this. I love the people that I get to chat with because they represent the struggles and the journey that each and every one of us has taken and the obstacles that we have overcome. And more so than that, they represent what they do with that lesson. You know, how has their lives changed? Well, I'm talking here uh, today about a phenomenal individual who has published a book that every single one of us is going to want to pay attention to today. And I'm hoping that you have your pen and pencil in hand because this book is The Road to a Healthy Heart Runs Through the Kitchen. My guest today, Joe, I'm going to call him Joe Piscatelli, he's here with us to share what he has learned. But this hasn't been about... Uh, waking up one day and saying, oh, I think I'll write a book. I think I'll write a book about, you know, what I'm putting in my body. You're going to hear about his story. And if you're like most Americans, you're probably thinking right now that, well, you know, my ticker will run out when I'm old or when I'm gray or this is only for people that are obese, and we've heard that before, or this is for people that, you know, generally just are uh, not taking care of themselves. We have a show today that Joe is uh, going to join us on, and we're going to be talking about how this particular topic is so important to every single one of us, why this book is sold, 2.5 million copies, and why he takes his story across the country, across the globe, talking with millions and millions of people so that we don't have to go through what he went through. Joe, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out and joining us today on bbsradio.com. This is a phenomenal station that's reaching millions of people, and you have a ton to say. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Dr. Pat. It's my pleasure to be with you. You know, I, I read the book here, and I, I, I looked a little bit at your story, and I was I have to tell you, I I was crying. It brought tears to my eyes. And one of the things I want to say about it, and you don't know this, I'm sure, that I had a favorite uncle. His name was my, he was my Uncle Joey. And my Uncle Joey, by the way, looked like something out of a fitness magazine. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, yes. Right yeah. out of a fitness He was the best looking of the brothers, by the way, of the Basili clan. The best-looking, had just phenomenal energy, and one day, boom, heart attack, and he's gone. And all of us kind of scratched our heads. And so let me ask you, in sitting down and writing this book, what was it in your journey that had you wake up one day and said that this is an important topic? Well, I I learned about it the hard way. I went through bypass surgery at the age of 32, and that was a uh, difficult way to learn that the way you chose to live, particularly the way I had chosen to eat, uh, had a lot to do with my health and my longevity and and the quality of my life. Uh, This was totally unexpected. I was playing tennis one day and 
got a little kind of a pulling sensation in the middle of my chest and continued on the next day and got the same sensation and the next day and the next day. I played tennis for 30 straight days and um, went in to complain to my doctor about what I thought was bronchitis. <clears throat> and uh, and we we went directly from his office to the hospital, and I went directly from the checkup by the cardiologist into bypass surgery. My children were six and four, hadn't been married to my wife ten years at that point. Um, my new business was about three years old. My new house was one year old. Uh, we just did not know what hit us. And the prognosis was not very good because I had uh, a physician at that time tell me that I probably would not live to be 40, that if I expected to see my children graduate from high school, that that was a dream. It was never going to happen. And that no matter what I did with my diet, it really wasn't going to have uh, a positive impact. But we couldn't take that information as gospel. We had to say, you know, we've got to try to do something. And so we started to make dietary changes, my wife and I, and for our whole family. Uh, they worked so well, I ended up writing the first book in this country on diet and cholesterol, a book called Don't Eat Your Heart Out. And now this year, uh, I will celebrate my 30th anniversary of of bypass surgery. I've, I'm 62 years old. I'm far past 40. I've seen my kids graduate from high school and college and graduate school. And we're even fortunate enough to have grandchildren, which I never thought I'd see. And it was all because I had changed the way that I lived and particularly the way that I had eaten. So um, it was a tough way. It was a tough lesson to learn and a tough way to learn it. I, I would much have rather preferred learning it for prevention rather than rehabilitation, but that's the way it worked. And let me just say something to everyone listening to the show today, that you went on to write uh, a number of other successful books, uh, Fat Proof Your Child, Take a Load Off Your Heart, uh, and now the one I'm talking about, The Road to a Healthy Heart Runs Through the Kitchen. And what I love about this, Joe, is that you are like all of the people listening to this show. You, you know, you're not a physician. You're someone that has uh, had an experience in life and said, I need to make some changes because I want to live. And so I would imagine you uh, began immediately on a path to finding out everything that you could possibly find out. What did, I mean, what did you do after you woke up one day and heard that story, that diagnosis, that you're not going to live past 40? I mean, what did you do? Well, I knew that because of my children, I mean, I had an obligation to my family to do everything I could to be around and help raise my kids. Uh, I started to research everything I could get my hands on about healthy eating and about exercise. And I traveled around and spoke to uh, physicians and uh, exercise physiologists and dietitians and attended lectures and and then kind of sifted through the information to see what would make sense and also what was practical. It's one thing to have the science, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to make use of it. I could, I could give you a four-inch thick study on cholesterol. What does it mean when Dr. Pat goes one-on-one -on -one with her refrigerator? Not, you know, not very much. So uh, we took that information and we started to make uh, the changes. And not all of it was successful as we got started, but I came upon a piece of information early on that helped us. And the information is this. 
The data show that bees 80% of the time. If you tell me what you've actually cooked the last two weeks, I'm going to predict the next two weeks, and, and I'll be right on. So instead of, uh, of uh, throwing out all of the foods that we enjoyed and, you know, uh, figuring we were going to survive on cardboard sandwiches or tasteless food, what we did was we took the 12 recipes we liked, we learned to strip them, strip the fat out of them, but only to the point that the taste remains, so that we got the best of both worlds, familiar food that's been made lighter. And, and so if you look at the recipes in The Road to a Healthy Heart Runs Through the Kitchen, you're going to find spaghetti and meatballs. You're going to find chili, both vegetarian and with meat. You're going to find chocolate. You're going to find macaroni and cheese, things that people uh, shake their head and say, oh, this couldn't be heart healthy. But, yes, they can be heart healthy, and, and I've got a 30-year history of eating that way to prove it. One of the things that um, that you are really taking out there is uh, something that I think most women really underestimate. I, I remember, I can't remember the exact page in the book, but I, I do remember that there was a, a, a part of the book where you where you recognize that only eight percent of American women realize that heart disease is a greater threat than cancer. And I've got to tell you, you're, I, you know, we have been so groomed here. To especially women to pay attention to cancer, especially breast cancer. Yes. That I, and, and in my mind, at least, do we even know that there is a relationship between the two? And I'm saying. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, a number of of cancers uh, are triggered by lifestyle choices, whether it's smoking or stress or a high fat diet, just like. Heart disease is triggered by that, um, and and I think that that's just now starting to be understood by women. I can't begin to tell you. I do a lot of lecture work. I do probably 70 or 80 lectures a year, and I can't begin to tell you how many talks I've given where the women in the audience were taking notes for their husbands because they said to me, I don't have to worry about heart disease. I need to worry about cancers, but not heart disease. Because I'm a woman, I get to circumvent heart disease. And today we know that women do not circumvent heart disease. Women simply postpone it. It happens 10 years later with women because during childbearing years, female hormones confer protection. But when you hit menopause and you lose the hormones and you lose the protection, uh, heart disease jumps on, on American women in a much more virulent strain. Uh, women don't survive heart attacks like men do or bypass surgery like men do or even angioplasty like men do. And so uh, what we've found is, in fact, in the last three years, we've had more females die of heart attacks than males die of heart attacks. So women are starting to get the message that this is the big-ticket killer in the United States, and it's, and it's not for American males that are at risk. It's for Americans that are at risk. Now, that brings up, I think, a, a very interesting question. Why is why do we have so much heart disease in the United States? And for a long time, we thought it was genetic, and everybody in your audience, I know, has had an annual physical where the doctor said, did your father have a heart attack? Did your grandmother have a heart attack? And um, so we tended to think that there were families that just had a bad gene. They had a bad heart attack gene. Uh, and yet Stanford University took a look at 100,000 families with heart disease and found that only 8% had a heart disease primarily because of bad genes 
and 92% had heart disease because of knives and forks. They all ate the same stuff, or they all smoked, or they were all under stress. And what I found very interesting, um, uh, I'm assuming you're, you have some Italian heritage. Uh, just a uh, bit, Joe. <laughs> just a bit. Uh, and, you know, what I, find, what I find interesting is Italians don't have heart attacks, but Italian-Americans do. And Greeks don't that's have kind heart of interesting, isn't it? I mean, yeah, that, it is. that, and you know, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, because what it tells none of my folks. That, yeah. What it tells me is that you know either our genes changed when we crossed the water, which mm. didn't happen, or our lifestyle changed. And if you've ever been to Italy and looked at the way that the first off that they move, they're not riding in cars all the time, or the second, you know, what they're eating, which is substantially different from. Uh, an American version of Italian food or an American version of Mexican food or any other kind of food, uh, then you can see that that's where the problem lies. Uh, I, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that of the 6 billion people that walk the face of the earth, 5 billion do not know how to spell cholesterol. And you know what, Joe? That's a conversation that we are have not had in this country except for people like you. And you are really the, the leader in this. Uh, and the question comes up, why is that? Well, I, I think we, you know, we're, we're, we, tend to, we have so much of it here that we tend to think it's a natural occurrence. Every family has been touched by heart disease. Uh, these days we've, we have uh, probably 100 million American adults, half the adult population with high cholesterol. Uh, we certainly have more than half the adult population that is now overweight and obese. So we have so much of this kind of thing that we tend to look at it and say, gee, this is a, in a natural way, when in reality it's not the natural way for most of the world. That um, I think people need to start to understand, and physicians need to start to talk about the fact that for most people that this is a culturally uh, induced problem, that uh, heart disease, high cholesterol heart disease, comes about for most of us because of our lifestyle habits, which is basically what we choose to eat, whether or not we choose to exercise, whether or not we choose to smoke, and how we handle stress. Those are the four areas that make up a lifestyle pattern. And um, it's not good in the U.S., but it doesn't mean that that's the natural way for every place else. There are really very few countries that have a prevalence of heart disease United States, Canada, British Isles, Northern Germany, Scandinavia. They're the Western industrialized countries, and we all live a fairly similar lifestyle, and that's the reason uh, for the prevalence. Uh, there are large areas of the world where, um, as I say, people do not know how to spell cholesterol. So the good news with that, Dr. Pat, is that, of course, you, it means that if you uh, improve your lifestyle habits, you get to manage the disease, as I have done for over 30 years, by, you know, watching what I eat, exercising regularly, et cetera. But for the really smart people, they get a chance to put those healthy habits in place so that they prevent the disease from coming on. And that's a lot smarter than trying to manage it after you have it. Well, one of the things that you talked about, since we're talking about cholesterol a little bit, I think there has been, you know, such confusion uh, in this country around good cholesterol, bad cholesterol, and and what to do about. I mean, we've got uh, physicians that we visit. Uh, they, they, they check our cholesterol, 
and, and you know, basically, you, you walk out of there, even if you have high cholesterol, and, and the bottom line is they're either going to give you some kind of medication for it or they're mm-hmm. going to, some of them will direct you to a nutri- nutritional direction. But we don't really have that piece. We're starting to see more in integrative medicine where that happens. One of the things you mentioned in the book, though, is that for every increase of one milligram in HDL cholesterol, we can decrease cardiac risk by 4%. And people don't know this information. Well, I think that's true. And, and you know, one of the things we, on the one hand, I want to uh, give kudos to uh, folks like the American Heart Association who have uh, really driven home the point, know your cholesterol, know your number. And I think everybody in this country knows that their cholesterol ought to be under 200. The problem is that that's a very simplistic way. It was a good first step, but if that's all you know about your cholesterol, you have no idea what's going on in your cardiovascular system. And I suggest to people that when they visit their doctor to to have an annual physical and blood test, uh, that they not be satisfied with comments such as, oh, your cholesterol is fine. You really need to know your numbers, and there's three things that I suggest people look at. Uh, the first is, what's my LDL cholesterol? That's my bad cholesterol. That's what goops up the pipes, like, like much as rust would accumulate in an old water pipe. And that is very sensitive to fat in the diet, particularly saturated fat and trans fatty acids. So if somebody's got a high LDL level, then you want to take a look at, at stripping as much of that kind of fat out as possible. The second question I'd ask the doctor is, what's my HDL, my high-density lipoprotein? That's called good cholesterol. It's actually a scavenger cholesterol. It picks up the bad stuff and causes you to excrete it. So you want as much of that as possible. That is primarily linked to exercise, so that people that are physically active run higher levels of HDL. And then the third thing I'd ask about, particularly if I were a woman, is what's my triglyceride level? Because triglycerides are a blood fat that work like cholesterol to goop up the arteries, and they seem to be more effective uh, in, in terms of uh, harming the health of women than with men. And, and if you have a high triglyceride level, uh, uh, then the two things that you can do to help that is lose a couple of pounds, because that helps, and watch for refined sugar in the diet. Uh, the bad cholesterol responds to fat, but triglycerides basically is a sugar problem. But I would, I would know my numbers in each of those cases because you might have two out of three that are perfect, but you have one that is a problem, and then there's a different remedy for it depending on which one it is. And if you know your numbers, then you're in a better position to manage it. You know, this conversation has been uh, so helpful. My, my listeners know that um, my sister was uh, quite obese and actually passed away at a young age from uh, conditions associated with that. And I'm very concerned about what we're calling obesity in this country and especially about our young people. Um, mm-hmm. what, do you, what do we say about that, Joe? I mean, is it out of control? Well, what can we do? Yeah. I'd hate to, to admit this to you, but in my heart of hearts, I think we've lost a generation. And I think I don't know that that the efforts uh, are are going to bring them back. I just think that we've got a 
a generation of teenagers and folks in their 20s now that are gone. Uh, but I do think we have an opportunity to change the uh, habits of younger children so that they don't get into that situation. But I, I no longer think it's it has to do with talking about the subject. I think it is what I think that the biggest thing that could happen is a revolution in the way that parents are living. Nothing has an impact on the dietary and exercise habits of children as the dietary and exercise habits of their parents. And so if you have an overweight child that you want to have, or even if he's not overweight, but you want to have him exercise more, you don't just show him the door and say, go outside and run around. You invite him to take a walk with you. If you have a, a child that you want to have better eating habits, you don't just say, um, you know, you have to eat more vegetables. You have to actually do some cooking. You have to serve vegetables. You have to make them appealing. You have to eat them yourself. So I think that uh, one of the problems with uh, American society today is we are so hurried and harried and stressed out uh, that we're always such behind the eight ball time-wise that we live with chronic stress. And, and what I find is when people are living with chronic stress, they can know so much about healthy eating that the food pyramid is tattooed on their foreheads. But when they're under stress, all roads lead to the refrigerator, and uh, and uh, stuff like M and M's become lunch. So uh, I I think we have I think that is the single biggest health problem that we face. That is the health of children is the biggest problem that we face in this new century. Uh, and but I don't think we're talking about it and writing about it's going to solve the problem. I think uh, parents saying the health of my children is a priority, I'm going to live well so that they can follow my footsteps. That's where the solution lies, in in my opinion. Well, you know, a part of this is what I call the great denial. And, you know, it's really easy to say, well, you know, that's just a hot dog. And, you know, one hot dog, mm. what's that? What, that's not going to matter, that one hot dog. Mm. And, you know, I'm too busy. <laughs> I'm, you know, just let's throw the hot dogs on the grill and or throw them in a pan and there you go but it's not that one decision it's the pattern of decisions that we've made yes. when you add yes. them all up you know we don't we don't even want to know how much fat we're eating a day you know what i'm saying no i i think that you're right that's a what did you call it i love that phrase the, the denial phrase the denial syndrome yeah well it's i i love that because i think that's where we are and the fact is um we're we're so busy and we're so out of time that if we do not recognize the problem, that is that our children are overweight and on their way to high cholesterol and high blood pressure and type 2 diabetes, if you don't recognize the problem, then you're not morally obligated to do anything about it. If you do recognize the problem and you're a parent, you are morally obligated to do something about it. And so it's easier just to tune it out and not say that they're, you know, uh, you don't want to know the fat in hot dogs. You don't want to total up how many times you've had fast food this week. Uh, you don't want to total up, you know, how many hours you spent watching American Idol as opposed to taking the dog for a walk. Because if oh, you now you're hitting below the belt, stuff. Joe. <laughs> yeah, you got me <laughs> below the belt there. I wondered if I'd catch anyone on that one, but and I'm not picking on them, but I'm just saying that <laughs> when you look at when you look at screen time, whether it's um, 
computers, TV, uh, you know, watching your iPod, uh, watching video, playing video games, that we we often talk about no time to exercise, but we do have the time. It's just a question of of where our priorities are. Well, you know, part of what you do in the book, and I just want to mention everyone, you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show. My guest today is uh, Joe Piscatella, and we're here uh, talking about really how each and every one of us can live a very healthy life. And we're, I want to say the book that I have in front of me is one of several books Joe has put out. And once you hear about his story, you'll get exactly why this book is important. Road to a Healthy Heart runs through the kitchen. 2.5 million copies sold. And it's sold for a lot of reasons, Joe. One of them is you not only provide the statistics and information, but you provide solutions. Um, someone can pick the book up, they can read this, and uh, and we can get a sense of the action that we can take a day. So well, that, that, you yeah, oh, go ahead. You didn't do this alone. I mean, I think uh, I think your wife had something to do with this. Bernie had something to do with yeah. this as well. So tell us what is it that that had you create this book in this way? What did you want to have people do by buying this book and using it? Well, I want them to understand uh, that, first off, that how we eat, because that's what this book is about, how we eat definitely has an impact on our our, uh, heart disease risk, our cholesterol level, uh, what we weigh, uh, whether or not we're setting ourselves up for type 2 diabetes or blood pressure or even certain kinds of cancer. I want them to understand that it counts. The second thing uh, that I'd like them to know is that uh, this is not doom and gloom, that you can eat wonderfully, you can eat tasty food, well-prepared, looks good, smells good, everything about it is terrific, uh, and it happens to be healthy for you. What, what we learned, I, I can recall coming home from the hospital after having bypass surgery, and of course we were paranoid at that point, and there wasn't a lot of information around, and, and Bernie, bless her heart, made um, turkey sandwiches on on some bread that was so high in in uh in roughage that it tasted like cardboard and i can recall uh i can recall saying to her you know bernie i may have survived the surgery but i'm never going to survive lunch and it just seemed like uh it just seemed like we were you know that anything that tasted good was forbidden and anything that tasted uh not so good was what they was being encouraged and uh, so it took us a while to work the problem, and then we found out that in order for families to eat healthy food, the healthy food must taste good. And we developed techniques to do that, and I wanted to share that with uh, people because there's no reason to suffer. I mean, uh, food is very important to me, uh, as I, and it is to a lot of groups uh, beyond the Italians, but with us in particular, it's family, it's love, it's companionship, it's holidays, it's all of these types of things. And so it was not just fill up on calories because that's what my body needed. There was an emotional side to this that was very important, and I didn't want to give that up. So uh, what we learned to do in the court, and we have done it for 30 years, was to figure out how to make healthy food taste good. 
uh, and how do you do it in a way so that you're not spending hours cooking? I mean, we Bernie developed uh, over 300 recipes for this book, and I would say well over half of them can be made in 30 minutes or less because we know people are out of time. But uh, the the nice thing about the the recipes and the tips and the menu planning is that anybody can do it, and it's simple and it's easy, uh, and uh, you get to have uh, really tasty food. I mean, I, I know a lot of people without cholesterol problems that use the recipes in this book just because they like good-tasting food. But for the rest of us, it's also going to help our heart health. And, and so that's a wonderful combination. So I think it's a very uplifting message, particularly, uh, as I say, when you consider the fact that for 30 years we have done this, and I have um, managed heart disease. 30 years post-bypass surgery is an eternity. Uh, uh, and so, you know, we're very happy that that's the way that it's worked out. But we never could have done any of it without uh, the recipes like the recipes in this book. What do you make of all of the diets coming out here now? And and I want to ask you this because uh, the the diet industry is just incredible. I mean, if you, if you want to yeah. become a millionaire, pick can come up with some kind of diet. That's but exactly right. It, I mean, it, who can make sense of it? Well, there's no sense to be made of it. I mean, the bottom line is we've had 60 years of quick weight loss diet books. If a single one had worked, if cabbage soup had worked, we'd be a nation of skinny folks. I just find it unbelievable that we're the only nation in the world that diets. We're the fattest nation in the world also. So we need to do the math. Um, this is not something that I would recommend. I, I mean, most of the diets um, are just ineffective. You will lose weight in the short term, the first two weeks, the first four weeks. But at the end of a year, you're going to weigh more than when you got started. Some of them are downright dangerous. Uh, we've seen with uh, with the high, the so-called high protein, which is really high fat, low carbohydrate uh, diets, that cholesterol levels have gone up and stress is put on the kidneys. So I, I would think those are not just ineffective. Those also pose uh, some potential danger. But I, I, I think we're we're a society that is so stressed and so out of time that we want quick fixes, whether it's a pill for our cholesterol uh, or whether it's a quick weight loss diet that is going to, you know, uh, in in one month's time get us to our high school weight so we can go to our reunion. It, you know, it just doesn't work that way in reality. Uh, I, I, early on, and I, and I'd be the first one to admit to you that I, I tried my share of diets in my old life, and um, but once I went through bypass surgery, one of the things I realized was that I did not have the luxury of just trying a diet because somebody was promoting it. That for me, it was no longer a question of how do you wish to eat for the next two weeks or the next month. It was a question of how do I want to eat for the rest of my life for substantive reasons, for the reasons of the health of my heart, not just the size of my waistline. And uh, what I have found uh, and what has worked for us is that I approached it uh, as a means to lower my cholesterol and lower my cardiac risk. But along with cholesterol coming down, weight comes down. I mean, I, I lost um, about 30 pounds 
from the time I went to bypass surgery to the time to, to, uh, to say six or seven months later when I was in full gallop on this new way of eating. And I have, I've never put any of that weight back on in 30 years. Uh, now, to me, that makes a lot more sense than being on this yo-yo bicycle of try this diet, lose some weight, gain it all back, try another diet, lose some weight, gain it all back, and just keep going in that direction. In fact, uh, that whole yo-yo dieting syndrome, I think, can actually set you up uh, to gain weight easier than uh, if you'd never gone on them at all. Well, not only that, I mean, the psychological impact of gaining and losing weight. You know, oh, yeah. you know, we talk about a generation that we've, you know, we pretty much may have lost, but psychologically, uh, from the perspective of what happens to self-esteem, and again, I refer back to my sister, uh, what happens to self-esteem for people that are dieting one minute and they're losing the weight and then they gain it back and then they beat themselves right. up and then the right. agony of that and the stress of that. I, I'm concerned about the psychological complications and consequences of this. And not just yeah. from an individual perspective, but look at society. Look at what we're doing psychologically. Yeah. Well, you're right. I think you hit it on the nail when you said that, that we we beat ourselves up. What I've always found fascinating is that um, you, you go on a diet, you lose some weight, and then the weight comes back on. Nobody ever blames the diet. We blame ourselves. And and yet it's the it's the diet which is ineffective, and it was they they're not designed to be effective in the long term. They're just they're sh- they're kind of short term fixes. But you're, the the psychology of of losing the weight and gaining it back. Uh, makes a person think, gee, I'm a real loser. I can't, I don't have the willpower to make this work. Uh, there must be something wrong with me. And I think that's a whole, a whole psychology. You could probably do a whole show just on that. And I, and I think you're, you're also right in that it's not just about the individual. It's about us as a society and, and, and how that impacts us. One of the things that, um, I did a book on, uh, the weight uh, and the health of children called Fat Proof Your Child. Uh, right. And I'm very, very interested in uh, the health of, uh, of American kids. But one of the things we found was um, how penalized uh, children are at an early age for carrying extra weight. They don't get chosen for the baseball team. They could have a voice like Barbara Streisand, but they never get chosen for uh, the lead in the school play, that kind of thing and that uh, there are some real emotional scars that kids begin to carry at an early age because, again, we've got the dichotomy in the United States where we're such an overweight population, but we're also a population that is very prejudiced against overweight. And people do pay a penalty. There have been numbers of studies about uh, two folks in the same job, uh, one makes less the overweight person will probably be paid less for that job, all those kinds of things. And we never before associated the self-esteem issue with children, but it's surely there now with uh, extra weight that uh, the kids are carrying. And at the same time, we have to be very careful that we don't send them the wrong message. And we have, you know, we have nine-year-old girls dieting, and we've got uh, huge problems with anorexia and bulimia. So that's the other side of the coin. But um, it just all, it never ceases to amaze me how we look for short-term quick fixes uh, 
to what are uh, our, what is basically fixable only if we're willing to do it for the long term. Well, you know, what you say, and I want to mention this to everyone, um, we're, we're here with uh, Joe Piscatella. Joe, why don't you give out your website and let people know how they can get a copy of the book. Yeah, the book is in, uh, you know, Amazon and all the bookstores. Yeah, and uh, uh, my website, I'll, I'll sp- it's just my name, but I'll spell it for you because people might not know that. It's www.joepiscatella, that's J-O-E, P is in Peter, I-S-C, A-T-E-L-L-A, Joe at JoePiscatella.com. Well, what I love about this book is, and I want to be clear to everyone, uh, for those of you that have been loyal listeners and been listening to the Dr. Pat show even before it was the Dr. Pat show and we were doing the crust-busting work on air, you know that uh, this is a very near and dear topic, very near and dear to my heart having lost my sister and my stepmother to massive heart attacks and obesity. Uh, and so we are here to make sure that you get information you need because this is about choice. And, you know, Joe, we can start just about anywhere. What's really important, I think, in the conversation, and this is what you do so well, is not holding guilt and shame over people's heads. It's giving them this hope and really taking them by the hand, especially in the book, and letting folks know that they can do this one step at a time. Uh, you know, I, I think part of it is is that I have lived it um, over the course of 30 years, and so I've made my share of mistakes. I've, I've taken the one, you know, the two steps forward, one step back, and gone through that, that this was not an overnight uh, success, that we really had to work at it, and 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 one of the reasons that I've been involved in writing these books is to make it easier for people uh, who found themselves in the same position or wanted to prevent that from being in that position. Uh, I get um, I probably get three or four calls a week from all over the country from people who are in intensive care, just had a heart attack, just had bypass surgery, and they're absolutely you know, paranoid at that point, they don't know what to do, and they'll call here, and I'll just kind of reassure them and say, look, we've, we've got information that's going to help you, and, uh, you know, get a copy of this book, uh, call me back if you have questions, that type of thing. Uh, so I, I'm trying to use the experience that we went through, um, uh, which started out so badly, uh, as a model for people that are interested in eating well, eating food that tastes good, but also want to take care of their heart, not just for themselves, but also for their their family. It would have been a huge tragedy in my family for a whole variety of reasons uh, if I had had a heart attack and died at the age of 32. Uh, And yet we we, we have so many people these days that have premature heart disease, uh, and, and it's really something that we need to look at in terms of the way we choose to live our life. And one thing that we certainly can do uh, is eat healthier than uh, the American diet. And when you're eating food that tastes good and is easily prepared, then uh, it's, it's, uh, it's much more, you're much more successful at it. And what I love about this, and I just want to tell everyone that when you get the book, you're going to see that not only are the recipes well laid out, um, but you get the uh, calories, the protein, the sodium, the carbohydrates, the cholesterol, the fat, 
and uh, and so forth and so on. And um, and believe me, I've looked at some of these, and I've got my eye on uh, a couple of these. Some of them look like they were from the old country, is what I want to say here, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you, you know, know. I, I'm not going to give a. Uh, I'm not going to give that up, uh, but we, in many instances, we've just made them a little bit healthier. Um, and uh, but you know, when I look at the the Mediterranean diet, and this is is modeled on the Mediterranean diet, with the use of olive oil and fish and uh, fruits and whole grains and vegetables, it's really for me the best combination of good taste and good health that exists. Uh, arguments could be made that the Asian diet does the same thing, but for me, and probably because of my heritage, I'm more partial to the Mediterranean. So what we have in the book is is a dietary pattern that is based on the success of the Mediterranean diet. We've tweaked it some uh, for Americans. Uh, there's probably a little bit more um, more meat on it, and there's milk, which you you don't find very much meat, and you don't find hardly any milk on uh, the actual Mediterranean diet. But in our version of it, we've tweaked it a little bit. But I just think it's a terrific balance, and any time you can get good food and good health going together, then then you know you've you've won. Well, and what I want to say, Joe, is I mean, I I love the book, and uh, for people that are thinking, uh, I, I don't have time, a lot of the recipes in the book, and I've gone through it, and a lot of the, these recipes can be made in advance, and you know, except for pulling it all together at one time. And yeah, that's so, right. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? It's like yeah. you don't have to wait until you get home from work to do this. No, you don't, and uh, it, and it's interesting because uh, times have changed. I wrote my first book in 1982. And we had many more people cooking in those days than today, uh, and people took more time in making recipes. And now um, times have changed, and so uh, there's less time. People have less time to put into recipes, so we've had to figure out ways uh, to make those recipes go together faster. Whether whether things can be prepared, you know, ahead of time, or whether just the whole recipe itself has been has been shortened down. Uh, we, I want to do everything possible to encourage people uh, to use fresh foods, whole foods, and and to do their own cooking. Not 100% of the time, because it's enjoyable to go out to a restaurant and and you know enjoy having somebody else do it. But in the last few years, because of the the stress and strain of uh, of modern society, uh, a lot of people have traded uh, nutrition for convenience. And by what I mean by that is is that uh, they're either buying takeout or fast food or eating in a restaurant, but they're not eating uh, at home, and they're not preparing food at home. And that's been a fundamental change from uh, 10 or 20 years ago. And uh, I don't know that we're ever going to go back to, to June Cleaver. I think that's you know that's long gone, nor, nor should we have to go back to that. But I, I do think that we need to uh, have some of those meals come from what we're putting together ourselves, as opposed to uh, you know bags of carryout that we're we're going to eat at home, but somebody else has has cooked it, and Lord knows what's in the food. 
Well, I mean, all of this is part of educating and informing uh, the people that are, are tuning in today and people that have bought your book. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, uh, and boy, how quickly this hour goes, uh, there's, a, there's an idea sometimes in our heads, Joe, that it's too late to start. Now, for a lot of us, we can, you know, we can look at food, and I've heard this as we get older. I've heard people say, you know what, it's not going to make any difference if I change this now. One of the things I point to, and the statistics you put in this book are staggering, are for people that smoke and the risk of heart disease. And that compounded with cholesterol. I mean, we don't talk about smoking that much, but people are still smoking. What do yes. we say to well, folks? Yeah. Well, it's, it, it, again, it's an interesting thing. There's, um, um, we certainly know what the risks are of smoking. In fact, seven-year-olds will come home from school and tell you why you shouldn't smoke. And so we get it. We understand it. And you would have thought that that had translated into a lower smoking rate, a rate that dropped down and stayed there. And it, that has happened, but only to one group in this country. And that group is Caucasian males who wear ties. When you look at blue collar, when you look at women, uh, when you look at minorities, the smoking rate dipped, and then it went back up again. We have more teenage girls smoking today than in 1960. And, and I just I don't understand how you can how we can understand so much about the debilitating effects of it and yet you know continue as a society to smoke. But I'm basically a diet and exercise guy. But if I were to tell someone what's the greatest risk for having a heart attack, it uh, would be cigarette smoking. Yeah. So uh, it, it's part it's part and parcel of it. As I say, when I when I look at what shapes a lifestyle, it's diet, exercise, stress, and smoking. Those are the four areas that I'm going to try to work in and try to, to you know, help people do better in each of those areas because they all play a very, very important role. What do you say to a woman that's 55 years old and still smokes? What would you say to her, Joe? Well, I'd say take a look at your children uh, because there's a couple of things that, that may come from this. First off, you set the model for your kids, so it's hard for you to tell your 16-year-old daughter not to smoke if you're smoking. The second thing is uh, take a look at your kids again and ask yourself, do I want to be around to see them grown up, to walk my daughter down the aisle, to go to the christening of my grandchild? Do I want to live to not just long, but do I also want to live well? Uh, and there's a difference. In, in this country... Most people are going to make good longevity because we have such a wonderful medical system. But I'm less concerned about longevity than I'm concerned with how many healthy years do we have, which is called health span, not longevity, but health span. I mean, the, the best thing would be to, you know, live to be 90 and for 89, and, uh, 89 years and 11 months have really good health and in the last month of your life things go to pot and you die. But uh, instead, you could uh, you could live to be uh, you know 80 years old, and uh, but instead of spending the last 20 years of your life in a golf cart, you spend it in a wheelchair because of the smoking and the stroke and the, you know all of those things that can come from it. 
So I guess uh, I would I would uh, look I would my advice to parents uh, that smoke is take a look at your kids and you know ask those questions. Do you want to see them grow up? Do you want to see your grandchildren? Do you want to be a model that that encourages your kids to smoke? All those kinds of things. And I know it's an addiction, but there are programs that you can get into. You can choose to get into a smoking cessation program. And and you can and you can make it happen because we see it with people every day. And you know, and we are working with three uh, companies, by the way, uh, that we're partnering with right now. Smoke Free International is one of them, <clears throat> and the Zero Smoke people another, because this is very very important uh, to me as well. Uh, all of this, Joe. I mean, it's it's like you are someone that had one of the hardest lessons in life that one could get, which is pretty much a death sentence for somebody to tell you, uh, listen, you've got about another maybe five good years in your life. And you decided to make some change and create some some conversation. What do people say to you? You travel all over the country. What do people say to you? What What is, in your mind, the the greatest obstacle that people face right now that really inhibit them from creating positive change? Well, I, I think uh, it is chronic stress. I think that we, I think that so many people in this country are living with chronic stress. And, and the, the interesting thing to me is that when we talk to them about it and we work with test groups, what we found is that it's not the big ticket items that are stressing people. It's not Iraq. It's not our 401Ks. What's stressing people out is the fact that they are just out of time, that they simply do not have the time to do everything they think they need or want to do. Uh, and I think it's worse for women these days than it is for men. I talk, I do some uh, consulting work for a number of, of corporations on their wellness programs, and I talked the other, the other day with a female engineer in the aerospace industry and she said, let me tell you about my day. She said, I'm doing, uh, I am uh, answering emails at 9 o'clock at night. I'm doing my laundry at midnight. I'm in a grocery store at 6 a.m. I'm delivering kids to school at 7. I'm punching in at my job at 8. She said, I get up every morning and I write a list of the 20 things I must do that day to have a successful day. I never get them done. So the following day I write a new list of 20, but I have a holdover of 10. She said, you know, weekends used to be for relaxing. Now they're for catching up. She just does all the jobs on the weekend that she didn't get to during the week. I think that's pretty typical for a lot of people in this country. I and couldn't I think, agree with you more. Yeah. and what, I'm what we, totally there. Mm -hmm. uh, what we found with test groups is that um, when, when people are under stress, they talk about eating healthy and exercising regularly, but they never do it. If people manage their stress, now you'll notice I'm talking about stress management as opposed to stress reduction. I don't think stress reduction is feasible. I think it's an oxymoron. Uh, I, I know when I teach seminars, there's nothing that I could teach you that would allow you to get up tomorrow morning with less stress in your life. To me, that's not a, a realistic goal. A realistic goal for me is to manage the stress in my life more effectively. That's the realistic goal, and and you can teach people to do that. And when that happens, then they're the guys that actually 
eat healthier and exercise more regularly because they're managing their stress better. So it's all kind of a, a package. I mean, I uh, the the book that I the, the Road to a Healthy Heart runs through the kitchen. Obviously, from the title, you can tell is about food. But uh, throughout the book, I talk about stress and exercise because, to me, they're all they're all geared in together. It's all part and parcel of the same thing. Well, you actually cover stress and exercise really quite nicely. Uh, and you really give people information about what they have to do each day, um, what the equivalent uh, exercise is for, you know, one, po- one and a half hours of, uh, of, of aerobic exercise a week, what the result of that will be. I mean, so you're right. I mean, the, the book is full of recipes, but it's also half the book is around behavior, behavior change, and getting information that will help people. Uh, you know, it's funny that we're talking about this. I had a flashback of my uncle. He's like he's going to be 90 years old. And my aunt and my uncle, my, my uncle Al and my Aunt Lee. And I think I thought about them prior to this show. They really are two people that from a Mediterranean diet and from walking every day and from being active, you know, they are really – you know, the the poster people for your book. But I hadn't really thought about it because in my own mind growing up in this generation here, you know, we've looked at olive oil. We went through a period where it doesn't matter what kind of oil it was, it was not going to be good for you. It was fat. Right. So you see what we've done in the cycle of learning about this. Are we at the point where we have to re-educate ourselves, Joe? Well, I, I think we always want to stay current with the information at the same time understanding that science marches on. Uh, but, you know, we we get little bits and pieces in headlines in USA Today, you know, in small paragraphs. Some of these studies have, you know, half a dozen people on them. So we've got to really look for the major kinds of studies. But I think that in our modern world, that you must be very proactive in terms of of generating information that will have an impact on your health. I think the days of having the doctor worry about it for you are long gone. Uh, it's a different medical system. It's a different way of doing things. So, you know, at, at one point we and change does and change is made. I mean, not too many years ago we said. Um, don't eat eggs because they're high in cholesterol. Well, you know, today we've come to understand that uh, how you cook the egg may be more important than than the egg itself. So all of a sudden now we're eating, you know, the the Heart Association, even for guys like me that have heart disease, you know, I can have three or four eggs a week, no problem. Uh, So that's a change, and that's science marching on, and we have to, to stay with it. So... Uh, I think the biggest mistake that we could do uh, would be to get a piece of information and think uh, this is like Dumbo's feather. I just have to do this and I will be well for my whole life Uh, because if the science changes in that area, you have to be willing and able to adapt to the new science because, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's the way it is and that's the way it should be. You know, Joe, I want to thank you so much. Boy, um, there's a lot that you and I can continue to to talk about. I want to make sure everyone knows 
Road to a Healthy Heart runs through the kitchen. 2.5 million copies sold. Uh, people are interested in this, Joe. It's a much-needed topic, and I want to thank you for getting the message out there, for making a powerful statement, and for providing solutions. And would you please uh, thank Bernie for me for putting some of these fabulous recipes in here. I will. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Pat, for having me on. This has been a real pleasure. Uh, absolutely. I want to thank everyone listening today. I hope you heard something that will inspire you to change your life. I want to thank bbsradio.com for pushing all the right buttons, making this a fabulous show for us. And until next week, remember that you have the power to change your life one decision at a time. Make yourselves a group. We'll see you next week.